Out of the Fourth Place, Chapter 3, Disillusioned. Many people are experiencing disillusionment when it comes to church. They know that something is wrong. They can't always name what they feel, let alone decipher how to fix it. And they're asking all kinds of questions. Why did the early church give away money to the poor, but all we seem to do is build bigger buildings? Why do I feel like the church leaders want me to volunteer my money and time, but they don't care about my life? Why am I inspired by Jesus, but Christians annoy me? Why do I long for a safe place to process these questions, but all I get from the church is platform absolutes? I want a dialogue, not a monologue. People are experiencing disillusionment with the church, use words like hypocrisy, fake, institution, organized, religion, shallow, betrayal, and judgmental to describe their thoughts and feelings. If you are feeling hurt, confused, or completely done with church, you are not alone. There is nothing wrong with you. Something actually is wrong with the church, and we need to talk about it. I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers, but I want to suggest that many of our questions are tied to the same underlying problems. We are attempting to run Christ Church from the fourth place, and it isn't working. The Worship School You might recall that after experiencing true spiritual community in college, a bunch of us moved into the same neighborhood together. During that season, I was working for Russell Investments and also dedicating massive amounts of time to leading worship at a local church. Eventually, I left the world of investments and went full-time at church. Part of the job was to launch a new program called The Worship School, a seven-month internship for people who wanted to grow in their gifts as worship leaders. At the time, our worship program consisted of 40 or so musicians and tech people. We wanted to train more people to support our various ministries that utilize worship personnel. For curriculum, I had the interns read several books from successful worship ministries. I also wanted to immerse them in scripture, so I had them, over the course of seven months, read through the entire New Testament. The assignment was to write down every verse they encountered on worship in a journal. It was quite a project. Once a week, we processed our findings together. It was in this Bible study that my own feelings of disillusionment began to form a name and some clarity. Right away, we started to feel like something was off. We were looking for verses to affirm our version of worship and church, but it wasn't working. We scoured the pages of the New Testament to figure out how to plan and run worship services, but what we were trying to learn simply wasn't what the New Testament was trying to teach. It wasn't just that the Bible didn't mention soundboards, microphones, and stage lighting. We understood that the Bible was written in a different era of technology. No, the contradiction went much deeper than that. I have been to numerous worship conferences and have read countless worship books. There are passages of Scripture every worship leader knows by heart. As we read the New Testament together, I began to realize that these familiar passages had little or nothing to do with my fourth-place paradigm of worship services. Sometimes they even contradicted my paradigm. For example, we studied Romans 12.1, which reads, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I can't tell you how many times I have heard the idea that offering our bodies is about lifting our hands or dancing or kneeling as we sing. After looking more closely at the context, we realized it had nothing to do with the music or singing. It was about everyone using what they had to serve the people in the community.
Ephesians 5.19 mentions songs. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This Bible study taught us that speaking had more to do with a spiritual conversation than a worship service. It follows the verse, do not get drunk on wine, Ephesians 5.18. Not because that is good general advice, but because they were gathering around a table drinking wine and enjoying conversation. They were speaking to one another around a table about God's goodness from the Psalms. Paul gives the church at Corinth some of the clearest instructions in the New Testament about what to do when gathering. He says in 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty six, What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Paul's description is of a community where everyone participates. There are no consumers, no observers, there are no performers. The believers did not contrive an environment of lights, smoke, and professional talent. They weren't striving after trendy, cool, hipster, ancient, or new. They simply brought who they were and what they had and offered it to God and to each other. Our internship was focused on creating excellent worship, but we didn't see anything in the New Testament that looked remotely like our definition of excellence. Acts 13.2 talks about Paul and others worshiping the Lord and fasting, but even the Greek word for worship in verses like this are more properly translated as ministering or serving. That's not to say they never sang, but there is universal agreement among scholars that the church did not even allow musical instruments for the first 400 years. They certainly sang. They certainly communed with the Lord together. However, what they called ministering to the Lord was more of a blend of corporate prayer, hymns, spiritual gifts, and scripture reading. The point was that everyone brought something to the table, not to the stage. Worship pastors, one of the first and most vital hires for modern church plants, aren't even mentioned in the New Testament. We have to go to the Old Testament temple passages to find anything remotely similar. I love music. I have recorded albums and been in a band. Looking through the New Testament to find what we do on Sunday mornings is a lost cause. Go to the Psalms. Go to Old Testament temple passages. Maybe go to heaven in Revelation. But even there, you're in a heavenly throne room, not the New Testament church. My disillusionment started to spread well beyond worship leading. I started asking questions about sermons and tithing and buildings. I read everything I could get my hands on. Old books, modern books, my disillusionment only grew. I went through bouts of bitterness, anger, and confusion. Eventually, I spent three years at Denver Seminary to study these questions. Now, with years of experiences like these behind me, it's no longer disillusionment for me. I have clarity. I believe at the core of my being that the modern church is attempting to live out the gospel of radical integration on a foundation of separation. We are preaching an incarnate Christ from a platform removed from culture. We are telling the story of a suffering servant from a celebrity stage. The medium and the message are at odds. Church is in the wrong place, the fourth place. Our people are getting mixed messages. So what do we do about it? The media of integration. If we want to move from a place of disillusionment to clarity, the first step is understanding the New Testament on its own terms. Rather than reading the Bible through the interpretive lens of the fourth place, let's look at the New Testament through the lens of integration. When we were reconciled to God, the broken antenna was restored. We no longer required a particular place. The temple was free to leave the building. 
Let's again utilize our media of place, people, and practices to see how the New Testament reflected this new reality in Christ. Place. The New Testament is the story of the temple moving into culture. The followers of Jesus had no central building. Instead, one of the primary ways they self-identified was as strangers scattered throughout the world. They were exiles, a people with a home in heaven, but nowhere to call home on earth. They did church here. Note for the audio listener, there's a diagram again, the same diagram, our place, our thing, and their place, their thing, and it shows where they, the early church, did church was down in the bottom half of the quadrant in their place. So they have modern buildings to help us imagine this for ourselves. The early church gathered wherever they could best integrate with culture. While the home, the first place, was one of their primary gathering places, they met in any type of location that made sense for their purposes and size. Public spaces, work, prisons, the marketplace, riverbeds, catacombs, and mountains all became places for the church to gather. In Acts 2, we see the church gathering in the temple courts. While this may sound like a religious place, Solomon's colonnade where they met was actually a public place in the outer courts full of all types of people and business, a second and third place. Now, some might ask, isn't the main reason they met in those places because of persecution? If they had the opportunity, resources, and size, wouldn't they have designed buildings like us? Great question, but no. The reasons for the lack of buildings were not merely passive. In fact, the evidence shows that the early church actively resisted the creation of religious buildings. The end of religious architecture was actually a core part of their ecclesiology, their beliefs about how church should work. Paul repeatedly told the people that they were the building, such as in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, 3.16, 6.19, 2 Corinthians 6.16, Ephesians 2.21 and 22. Peter told the people that they were the building in 1 Peter 2.5. This was a radical concept for good observant Jews whose way of life and culture revolved around the physical temple. Something monumental must have happened for them to believe the temple had moved into a community of people. Municius Felix, an early church father, writing around the turn of the second century, wrote, But do you think that we conceal what we worship if we have not temples and altars? And yet what image of God shall I make, since if you think rightly, man himself is the image of God? What temple shall I build to him when this whole world fashioned by his work cannot receive him? And when I, a man, dwell far and wide, shall I shut up the might of so great majesty within one little building? Tertullian, a contemporary of Felix, wrote similar sentiments when writing to Roman leaders about the Christians. You have filled every place among you, cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camp, tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum. We have left nothing to you but the temples of your gods. We left you only the temples? Christians were intentionally staying away from religious buildings and instead putting themselves into every other sphere of culture. It wasn't that they couldn't afford buildings or hadn't thought up the concept yet. Rather, they were consciously working to integrate with culture and avoid being like the other religions. They didn't want temples. They didn't want a fourth place. As much as the temple was based on separation, the church was based on integration. They were following Jesus, the one who had incarnated himself into the world, the one without a home, the one who ate and lived among sinners. Now, 
I understand that for many of us, trying to imagine church without buildings is a real stretch. If you are starting from a position where you already own a building, we will discuss wonderful possibilities to practice integration utilizing your existing facility. For now, I just want us to look at the forms of the early church. Let's allow the early church to speak for itself without all of the modern assumptions about church architecture. Some may be wondering about the Jewish synagogue as a gathering place. Clearly, Jesus spent regular time in the synagogue, as did Paul, on his missionary journeys. However, as the church spread, we see no evidence of the church constructing anything new resembling the synagogue. In other words, Jesus spent time there because Jesus was a Jew, not because of the new mission. Paul spent time there in order to preach the gospel to Jews, but it had more to do with incarnating the gospel into existing Jewish culture than adopting a building style that would be repeated by the early church. As the faith spread, they did not build synagogues. They integrated themselves into the world in which they lived. Tertullian's list says Christians integrated with every sphere of culture, political, military, economic, judicial, the workplaces, the cities, everywhere people lived, died, did business, played, governed, and more. That's where the Christians went. That's what it meant for the church to be incarnational, to live and gather among the culture following the pattern of Jesus. For the first 200 years of Christianity, there was no interest in constructing religious buildings, only integrating the kingdom into what had already existed. Jesus says in Luke thirteen twenty and 21, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour, until it worked all through the dough. 60 pounds! That's a lot of dough! Why so much? Because the world is a big place, and every culture, language, subculture, home, farm, and prison needs to be filled with the kingdom of God. A change in function. Jesus' coming meant a functional change for the temple. I will unpack this in detail in chapter 8, and I want to bring it up here as well. In design theory, form is supposed to follow function. This means that our purpose, our function, should drive our forms. The Old Testament temple performed a certain function. God wanted to use Israel as a light to the nations. The physical temple drew people toward the center and toward that light. However, something remarkable happened in Christ. The light went mobile. There was a functional change. The function was no longer get the world to the light, but instead get the light to the world. God has always been ascending God. The temple has always been for all nations. Now that the relationship had been restored, it was time for a new medium, one that could go to the nations rather than expecting the nations to come to it. How do you spread the light into every culture, every tribe, and every language without destroying their beautiful diversity? You make the temple out of people. After all, what do all cultures have in common? Certainly not architecture. Buildings are culturally bound. If the early church would have built Jewish synagogues, their mission would have stalled out in Israel. But if you make the temple out of people, then you have a vehicle that can carry the light into the entire world. If you make your central gathering a meal, then you have something every culture can understand and do together. There was a change in function, and that function required a new form, a human temple. It was not an accident that the early Christians avoided their own buildings. The movement started by a carpenter certainly could have involved construction projects. 
It wasn't that Christians in the early church were unaware of large buildings. To the contrary, they were surrounded by Roman temples, colosseums, and a basilica. It wasn't that all Christians were poor and persecuted. There were plenty of seasons of Christian freedom from persecution. Paul was a Roman citizen and could have easily gone on his church fundraising journey to raise money for a building project in Corinth instead of supporting people dying of a Jerusalem famine. He didn't. Why not? Because he wanted to restore human temples dying of starvation, not physical temples dying for a remodel. The early church carried an ethos of integration with culture, not separation from culture. Paul had no interest in attracting people to a polished event in a beautiful building. The early church was not trying to get people into their Christian temples. They were trying to get the living temple into their world. A sidebar, Next Generation by Dudley Callison. We gathered a bunch of leaders of the next generation and asked them, what will church look like for you in the future? Their answers were inspirational. None of their answers was rooted in buildings, staff, or programs. Millennials don't care so much about denominations, nor do they intend to join a church and spend their money on keeping the doors open. In fact, they categorically see the church as poor stewards of resources that could be used to solve global issues. They want meaningful community, creative interaction with God, and behaviors that meet real-time human needs. In Communitas, we envision churches that think, care, and act like Jesus in our world. People, just as the temple change meant a radical departure from a physical place, it also meant a radical leveling of the priesthood. Before, only certain people of a certain gender in a certain tribe were able to perform religious duties. Jesus was the great leveler. He put religious leaders on the same level as prostitutes. All people, all races, male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, could all participate in the church. Everyone was an important part of the body. Why? Because the curtain was torn in two. They no longer needed access to God through a priest. Now everyone had access to the Spirit. Everyone was a priest. Everyone had something to give. If everyone is full of God, why should one senior priest do all of the work? In the early church, team leadership was the norm. A group of elders was formed to help oversee each church community. Deacons helped serve. The basic role was participation. Everyone played a role. There were clearly leaders present, but with specific duties. But they led from within the community as servants, not up front or separate from the community. If you are a ministry professional or earn your paycheck from the church, stay with me. Saying that we need mutual participation in the church in no way indicates a lack of organization or structure. No, the early church still needed strong leadership. Though not centered in offices in religious buildings, they still had an intricate relational network requiring full-time care. We will cover this in depth in chapters 6 and 10. For now, just observe some of the ways the early church promoted a spirit of mutual participation. As you read this description from Tertullian of an early church gathering, try not to imagine your church building. Instead, try to imagine the third floor of a home in an open, lamp-lit dining room similar to that of the Last Supper. The nature of our meal and its purpose are explained by its very name. It is called agape, as the Greeks call love in its purest sense. However much it may cost, it is always a gain to be extravagant in the name of fellowship with what is God's, since the food brought is used for the benefit of all who are in need. 
to respect the lowly is all important with God. The participants do not go to the table unless they have first tasted of prayer to God. As much is eaten as is necessary to satisfy the hungry, as much is drunk as is good for those who have lived a disciplined life. When satisfying themselves, they are aware that even during the night they should worship God. They converse as those who are aware that God is listening. After the hands are washed and the lights are lit, all are asked to stand forth and to praise God as well as each is able, be it from the Holy Scriptures or from their own heart. From this it will be recognized how he drank. In like manner, the meal is closed with prayer. After this, we part from one another, always pursuing the same self-control and purity as befits those who have taken in a truth rather than a meal. This is the way Christians meet. How does Tertullian's gathering compare to your typical church service? What is the same? What is different? When I read this, I can't help but want to be part of that kind of gathering. It sounds life-giving and relaxed. Believers get to hang out together, drink wine, eat a good meal, love the poor, hear from each other, and pray together. It sounds like spiritual family, not spiritual performance. Some reading this may think, that sounds more like my small group than my church service. Good observation. Remember, though, when Tertullian says this is the way Christians meet, he is implying that this meal was their primary gathering, not an optional add-on like many of our modern small groups. When Jesus came as the great high priest, he changed the definition of the temple. Church was not an event to be attended, but a community of love and acceptance. The church did not connect to God through the one holy priest, but instead found Christ in each other. Church was not a holy place where holy people do holy things, but a spiritual family. Practices There is a reason all religions of the world use temple forms. They communicate distance between the holy and the unholy. They create dependency because they communicate a lack. You lack knowledge? Come to the guru. You lack health? Come to the temple for healing. You are unclean? Come and wash. You have sinned? Come and sacrifice. Once again, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection marked a functional change for the temple. Jesus was the final sacrifice. All believers in Christ were made clean. All believers were forgiven. There was no longer a lack. Now, instead of bringing needy people to the temple, we could bring the temple to the needs of the world. We don't do this because we have it all and have all the answers, but because we carry in our weak and frail jars of clay the living God. 2 Corinthians 4.7 Everything the temple represented is now embodied in a community of believers. That's why the temple language we do encounter in the New Testament is always radically reinterpreted to talk about people. Paul, for example, borrows the temple language of a drink offering to talk about the end of his life and ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. 2 Timothy 4.6 Paul says in Romans 12.1, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Again, the language of temple sacrifice is borrowed to talk about the commitment to each other in the body. Where is the sacrifice? Where is worship? In a building? No. It is anywhere, everywhere. The followers of Jesus offer their lives for each other and for their communities. The writer of Hebrews explains this shift. 
If you are new to Hebrews or the language of the Old Testament sacrificial system, this passage can be a bit confusing. The writer here is saying that worship used to take place on a physical altar, the place where they did the sacrifices in the temple. He refers to this as the inside the camp. Camp here refers to the Jewish tabernacle, the predecessor to the temple. People had to go inside the camp to get to the holy places and perform their sacrifices. In Hebrews 13, 9-16, the writer explains how all of this changed through Jesus. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come through Jesus. Therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share it with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Where is the altar? In front of the worship center or sanctuary? No, the altar is not in the temple, and it is not in your church building. The world is the altar. Where is the sacrifice? An animal? People singing at church? No, the sacrifice is real people offering their lives for others. It is people living like Jesus by doing good and sharing with others. Do you know what happened outside the camp in the Old Testament? Outside the camp was where they isolated diseased people. Outside the camp was where the people went to shovel to relieve themselves. Guess where our altar is? Outside the camp. Guess where we are to be a living sacrifice? Outside the camp. Outside the religious system. Out in the mess of culture. There is no inside or outside anymore. This new reality has massive implications on church practices, especially our worship. Jesus' coming marked an end to a central altar and a return to the everywhere worship of Eden. The integration of our practices meant a return to all of life as worship. Now, don't get me wrong. I like a lot of our worship songs. Some are catchy. Most contain beautiful truths. Unfortunately, many of them take something that was supposed to happen outside the fourth place and they put it right back on the stage. Consider the lyrics to a well-known worship song. We bring a sacrifice of praise into the house of our Lord. Some of you probably know this song. I grew up singing it. It's a good song and I'm sure it was written with a good heart. But do you see the tension? Hebrews thirteen fifteen to 16 tells us that a sacrifice of praise is to do good and to share with those in need. Where? Outside the religious zone, out there in the streets and alleys and neighborhoods. That's what the early church actually believed and practiced. Municius Felix described this when he wrote, He who cultivates justice makes offerings to God. He who abstains from fraudulent practices propitiates God. He who snatches man from danger slaughters the most acceptable victim. These are our sacrifices. These are our rites of God's worship. Thus, among us, he who is most just is he who is most religious. Jesus integrated place, people, and practices. 
When the temple moved into culture, every part of our lives as his followers was supposed to follow suit. To summarize where we have come so far, the following table is helpful. Again, for the auto listener, here he has a table. Uh, The top columns are labeled physical temple, Jesus as the temple, and church as the temple. And down the left side, the rows are called place, location, people, leadership, and practices, worship. So in the physical temple, the place, location was Jerusalem, the leadership were select priests, and the practice or worship was the sacrificial system. In the second column where Jesus was is the temple, the location was Jesus' body, was the the people or leadership was Jesus was the high priest, and the practice or worship was Jesus was the final sacrifice. And in the last column where the church is the temple, the place or location is the community of believers, the people leadership is the community of priests, and the practices of worship is the living sacrifices for each other. The Bible communicates a movement from a physical temple to Jesus as a temple, and finally to the church, a community as the temple. This is not some strange new dispensationalism. This is what the Bible teaches. A new wineskin. It has taken a long time to realize how I was reading the Bible through the wrong lens. Paradigms shifts can feel unsettling and quite painful. When Jesus spoke of this type of change, he used the image of a wineskin. He said that new wine will cause old wineskins to break. I have been there. As our worship interns and I read through the New Testament, it sent me on a bit of a tailspin. Just as Jesus promised, my wineskin was starting to crack. My old assumptions simply could not contain the new wine. If your wineskins are starting to crack, it's okay. In fact, take your time. Read a lot of books. Ask great questions. Discuss this with friends. When I began to understand this new wineskin of church and worship, the entire New Testament started opening up to me. It started to make sense why there are so few mentions of the word worship, or singing, or tithing, or anything resembling excellent performance. At the same time, it started to make sense why there are abundant instructions about how to live in community. If the new worship is sacrificial living for each other, then there are all kinds of instructions about worship. Love one another, encourage one another, serve one another. The list goes on and on. A Misunderstood Woman Early in the chapter, I shared several passages that I had formerly misread under my fourth place lens. I saved the best for last. It is the story of the woman at the well. If there is any passage known to all worship leaders, it is the phrase about worship in spirit and in truth. I can't tell you how many times I have heard it taught or preached that spirit and truth means that our worship services should be a good balance of both emotion and biblical truth. Or, in more charismatic circles, spirit and truth is about the balance of spiritual gifts and biblical doctrine. Either way, It is regularly taught that worship in spirit and truth is all about worship services and how to keep them balanced. I want to close this chapter at the well of Sikar because this amazingly misunderstood woman represents the whole point of this book. Many people interpret this story to be about worship services when, ironically, the point is actually quite the opposite. I don't know how you have heard it taught in the past. There are quite a few regular sermons preached on John chapter 4. One focuses on the first part, that Jesus decided to go through Sikar, 
the despised Samaritan town, instead of going around Samaria like most good observant Jews. It is a story about crossing cultures. Another is the angle of being born again and receiving the living water. Yet another is the woman's checkered sexual past and Jesus' love for her. Normally, when we get to the part about worship in spirit and truth, we treat this like it's a tangent. We say that she wanted to change the subject. She didn't want to talk about her sexual brokenness, her relational disappointment, her community exclusion, her shame, so she brings up worship. We then go on to imagine that worship in spirit and truth is about balanced worship services. Does that make any sense? A hurting, shame-filled woman ask a question about which temple to worship at, the Samaritan one at Mount Gerizim or the Jewish one in Jerusalem, and Jesus decides to lecture her about balanced worship services? I don't think so. This woman and her people have a very real question about legitimate worship. To them, the temple was the only place of true worship. If you went to the wrong place, your worship didn't count. So where was the right place? Where did God dwell? The Samaritans said it was Mount Gerizim in Samaria. The Jews said it was in Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Who was right? For centuries, this Samaritan woman's people had been despised by the Jews. The Jews had even destroyed the Samaritan Temple in 128 BC. Now, finally, sitting in front of her was someone who might actually answer for God on behalf of the truth, a real prophet. If he knew the truth of her marital history, maybe he could answer the deepest question of her people. This was not a random tangent. She asks about the true place to worship. Her paradigm is revealed in her question. She was asking a question from the paradigm of physical temple worship, fourth place worship. We are very similar to this woman. We continue today to ask the same types of questions. What is the right way to worship? With drums? with liturgy, with hymns, with smoke machines, Aegeus' response is remarkable. He blows up her paradigm and our paradigm and reveals a new wineskin of church and worship that she could never have possibly conceived, a wineskin based not on religious centers of worship, but on people born of the Spirit. We have to go back to a chapter in John to understand the extent of what is happening here. In John chapter 3, Jesus had a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a respected Jewish leader who snuck over to Jesus under the cover of night. Nicodemus represents the religious elite, the insiders. Jesus tells Nicodemus about the Holy Spirit, about being born again. Nicodemus doesn't get it. Then, in John chapter 4, Jesus gives a Holy Spirit lesson to someone on the other end of the social spectrum, a despised Samaritan female outcast. This woman represents the hated outsiders the religious rejects. He talks to her about the Spirit as living water. She doesn't get it either. Jesus is trying to tell them both that the temple paradigm is shifting from centered to mobile. Instead of brick and mortar, the temple will be people full of the Holy Spirit. You must be born again. You must drink the living water. Jesus tells her, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship Him in the Spirit and in truth. John four twenty three to 24 I imagine Jesus saying it this way, The temple used to be a place where you went to meet with God. The question of where to go to worship really mattered. 
You did, in fact, need to go to the right physical temple. But right now, sitting in front of you, I am currently the temple. I am the high priest. I am the sacrifice. And soon, when I return to the Father, you are about to be the temple. The point of both Nicodemus and the woman at the well, when combined, shows that the new temple paradigm applies to all people, the entire spectrum of humanity. The Holy of Holies is not going to be just for one special male Levite. God's presence is going to be for everyone. It's not going to be for the religious elite. It's not going to be for the Samaritan outcast. It's going to be about all people, all types, born of the Spirit, fully pleasing to God, the Father, who is not searching the world for properly balanced religious worship services, but for people full of His Son through the Spirit. Those are the true worshipers. This is the new paradigm. Jesus takes the most despised human a Jew could imagine and explains to her that the center of worship is now mobile. A technology change has occurred. What used to be about a physical center of worship is now about a community of hearts on fire. If the new paradigm of worship is no longer about a holy place where holy people do holy things, then how fitting is it that one of the first people to know would be the most unholy person in the most unholy place whose life had been riddled with unholy sexual practices? I love it. This rejected woman is the type of person God wants to use to change the world. It's a new wineskin. A temple is coming that is not built to draw people to a religious center, but to integrate the kingdom of God into every culture of the world. The church would no longer separate. The church would integrate. And that is just what happened for nearly 300 years anyways. Then along came Constantine. <laughs> 